Welcome to the Fearless Training Raw Knowledge Podcast, where we talk everything training, nutrition, and lifestyle collectively. Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Fearless Training Raw Knowledge Podcast. This is episode 15, and I'm your host as ever, Alex Connor. And today I've got a very anticipated episode with the one and only Nathan Wallace, who is a strength and conditioning coach at Hold Your Own. He's also the founder. This one has been in the pipeline for a while. I've really wanted to get Nathan onto the podcast as he's someone who has had a tremendous positive impact on my career, my training, and the way I think and approach my coaching as well. And I know he's a big inspiration for a lot of other coaches and physique athletes and powerlifters alike within the industry, and he's very highly respected. And very rightly so, because he's super humble, he's very knowledgeable, and at the end of the day, Nathan, he's a really down-to-earth great guy, as you'll find out in this episode. So for those of you who don't know about Nathan, because I know a lot of you will, His aim is to provide a more unique, holistic approach to contest preparation, strength coaching, personal training, or a year-round sort of diet regimen to get you looking and feeling your best. Nathan has numerous titles, which some of you may know, from natural bodybuilding and powerlifting, ensuring that he's not only got the knowledge behind him, but he's also got first-hand real-life experience as well. And that counts a lot, especially in today's industry as we move forward and we're on the pinnacle edge trying to get the best of the best out of the athletes and also performance-based as well for not only just on the platform but the stage too. Nathan is himself, he leads by example, he's a pro bodybuilder in both the IMBA and the PMBA and Muscle Mania. Now, when he stepped on stage, uh, it was a few years ago now, he sent ripples worldwide when he stepped on with strided glutes, only seen at that time by the most elite pros in the world. So he was setting the standard back then for the conditioning. And now it's almost like, hey, if you want to be pro level, you've got to have strided glutes. That is just the standard now, which we'll sort of get into and touch base on a little bit in this episode. Along with his bodybuilding, he's also an elite powerlifter. He ranks very high in Australia, and he's won numerous powerlifting titles as well. And for all those little descriptions and specifics, I will put them in the show notes so you can see exactly what and how Nathan has achieved. And uh, you can sort of get a gauge of how much of a talented athlete and a coach he is. And in this episode, we get into some of the nuts and bolts about prescription and programming. And it was a really interesting conversation with Nathan. And it was good to sit down. And we always end up talking everything, training. It's so easy to talk uh, with someone that is very passionate about what they do. And man, we could have talked for a lot longer. And there's definitely going to be a round two where we delve into some more given subjects. So I think, guys, if you want to hear something specifically, if you want to know about something specifically, especially from Nathan and myself, you want some subjects for us to talk about, pop them in those comments below, send us an email, let us know what you want to hear and we'll make sure we provide it because we know that there's a lot of key topics now, there's a lot of information out there and sometimes it can be hard to gauge what is what and what isn't and at the end of the day, we just want to provide, again, a better 
source of information, some some more strategic and intelligent knowledge so you guys can achieve your goals much more successfully in the long run. But I'm going to start rambling here, guys. This one is a phenomenal episode. I know you're going to get a lot out of it. And uh, until next time, guys, enjoy this episode with Nathan Wallace. Nathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, my friend, for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yes. Absolutely my pleasure. So let's start off, uh, as we always do, for those who are not aware, tell us a little bit about what you do, first of all. Okay, so I'm personally a strength coach. I've been uh, coaching since I was 18 years old, straight out of school. Uh, So that's about 14 years now I've been coaching people personally. so, yeah, I try to get people into better shape. I try to make people stronger. Um, from there, I've been able to create a bit of a business out of it. So, um, whereas to now I have a reasonably successful business, I think, uh, in coaching where I have a few guys that work underneath me. Um, and the business name is called Hold Your Own. And yeah, so we just try and get people into shape. We specialize in bodybuilding, uh, physique coaching in general, uh, powerlifting. Uh, a lot of, like myself, I do a fair bit of powerlifting and bodybuilding, that's where I kind of started. Um, and we, a lot of the other coaches also do, so they also do bodybuilding and powerlifting. So it's kind of been a bit of a niche for us. But if anything, we also uh, do have a very good, as much as I hate using the word, gen pop um, clientele. So I think that the, the crossover between the two is uh, very marginal. You know, it's just how far do you want to take it and uh, how in depth and um, specific do you, want to, do you want to be with the client. So um, we, do, we definitely have a very good gen pop uh, clientele as well. But yeah, we're at, uh, at Hold Your Own, we're at Strength and Body Recompositioning facility, uh, we have a gym, and it's where we, it's our sort of hub, yeah. Awesome, man. And can we go in then a little bit, where you started, like when, let's go right back, like why do you do what you do, like what, how did you fall in love with it, we talked a little bit about this, me and you a lot yeah, off camera, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but you yeah, know. We've known each other for a while, so. Exactly, yeah. exactly, and it's been a, it's been a, mate, it's been an education for me. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure some of the viewers know a large inspiration you have referenced on some of the other podcasts as well. Yeah, a little bit about like why you fell in love with, with the Iron Game, I guess, and, and what inspired you to continue on and build what is now Hold Your Own and you know, successful coaching business. Yeah, well, it started because I was, uh, used to play football, used to play AFL. Um, and my dream was always to be an AFL footballer. Uh, and uh, when I was young, I was around 13 years old, I was trying to make rep sides and I was very, very skinny, small kid. Um, and he used to be picked on a little bit at school um, for how small I was, um, just easily pushed around. And then also trying to make rep sides into football, I uh, was getting pushed off the ball and that was the feedback getting, coming back from the coaches. It's like, you need to put a bit more size on, you're getting pushed off the ball. Um, and for anyone that knows AFL, AFL footballers aren't the biggest of human beings anyway because we do a lot of running. So if you told you're getting pushed off the ball, man, I was very skinny. Mm. Um, so my uh, father, who 
used to compete very a while ago, back in probably, <laughs> I'd say the 70s, maybe, yeah. Uh, so around the 70s, he also owned a gym, uh, and so he was looking to get back into it, and so bought us a bit of a setup at home. He used to do a little bit and pieces at home, I used to watch him, and so then I started, and he, sort of, he taught me how to get into you know, training, and I just loved it, just loved it from the get-go. Straight away, I kind of took a real big um, liking to it, and I saw results pretty quickly from it. Um, Dad taught me a little bit about nutrition, um, very old school sort of style and methods of it. Yeah. Um, but essentially, I just started like, feeding myself a lot uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, increasing my protein intake and um, just saw my strength go up and then I still start seeing results. Didn't, fast forward a couple more years, I kind of got to the point where I didn't quite make the NFL. I uh, kind of thought, where am I going to go from here? couple of people at the gym, I sort of joined the gym at that point in time, said to me, and I started uh, straight out of school, I you know, became, went straight into PT, um, and a couple of people at the gym was like, you should compete in, in bodybuilding, because of decent physique and stuff like that, so I, I got like a hack diet from a, from a bodybuilder that used to come into the gym, and it was a very terrible, like, looking back on it, it was terribly traumatic experience. Um, why I'd want to go back after something like that, I, I, I still don't know. But um, it was essentially tuna, this a quarter of a cup of oats, maybe twice a day, wow. uh, and celery. I ate for like twelve weeks straight wow. uh, while doing two to three hours of cardio a day. At least it Just, wasn't fish and rice cakes. Yeah, <laughs> it was literally fish and like rice cakes. It was about as bad. It was about as bad as you can get. Um, anyway. I, I don't know how, but I got ended up getting. I got myself in shape. I was obviously in a massive calorie deficit. I had to lose weight. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I ended up winning Queensland and nationals. Went on, won, won the teenage nationals in in two thousand and six. Uh, and from there, I, I think the winning side of it for me, I I've always been someone who very competitive. So when I won, that kind of was a real big draw card to me. And so as much as how traumatic that experience was. Um, it brought me back to the sport, I think, and I pretty much finished up competing straight afterwards. I think I got, st I don't know what people were trying to do to me at the gym. Then another guy at the gym said, you should powerlift. And so I just finished competing in power, in bodybuilding. And then I think a couple of months later, I did my first powerlifting competition. Oh, it was, um, that, it was that quick. It was session. very quick. It was within a few months. It was like a defining I think I must have finished in, I think I did my first comp in 2006. Uh, as a bodybuilder, and my first competition powerlifting was maybe February, March of the next year in 2007. Mm -hmm. And so, as much as I've kind of uh, grown a reputation of being a good a bodybuilder, uh, I start, kind of started powerlifting around the same time. And I really loved powerlifting. I just loved the squat bench and I did them all the way, all the time anyway. Um, I always liked the challenge of them. Um, but yeah, just uh, it was something that then the, again the competitive side of it. I kind of did very well at powerlifting, um, and went off and did some nationals. Ended up winning, getting some records, um, national records and things. And yeah, that that competitive side of me sort of drew me towards it. Um, competed a fair few times over those years. I think I competed uh, in bodybuilding. I think I powerlifted almost every year. Uh, there's only been in the last few years that I haven't competed in powerlifting here and there, but in bodybuilding it was sort of like 2006, 2008, 
2011 a couple of times, I did both seasons. Mm -hmm. uh, 2013, that's when I did my last season. Um, and then in 2013, that's when I grew whole drone. I was starting to get quite a bit of, bit of a following. People wanted to get a fair bit of coaching from me. I was getting a bit more successful as a bodybuilder. And uh, from there, I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm getting such an influx of, of people coming, wanting to get trained by me. I'm not, I wasn't able to keep up. Oh, I need to make a business out of this. And I had um, known of a couple of people making businesses out of it, but really nothing too major. Uh, but the, there was a company out there uh, and uh, I drew inspiration from them. So it was 3DMJ, so the guys from 3DMJ, and I saw what they were doing and they were sort of, I was like, oh, that's awesome. You know, there's a group of guys out there that are, Know, doing coaching, they're coaching, doing you know, bodybuilding specific coaching at that point in time. And I was like, you know, there's, there needs to be something like that for Australians. Uh, and that's kind of where it grew. And that's when I started to look to and uh, get some people that sort of would want to come along and start coaching uh, and being part of the company. So, um, so yeah, then I started in Corn. I think one of, first in, uh, one of the first coaches I brought on was Brent Kempter. Uh, and so he, he was on board and sort of, he, he was very raw at the, first, at the time when he sort of came on board. Uh, uh, Josh Hampson, uh, and so Brandon's now gone off and built his own, own um, business, but then uh, Josh Hampson, Josh Hampson's still around. Uh, got Zach, and he's obviously done quite well. Um, I think you've had some couple, maybe had a couple of them on, um, on your podcast already. Yeah. Liam Bygott, That's he's it. obviously done quite well. Um, uh, Josh Christensen, he's done quite well. So everyone that we've sort of been able to pull on, been very good competitors, but I think what draws us all as, um, what unites us all is, is that we, we want to see, we're good competitors, but we want to be able to help other people become good competitors or just be the best of what they, their abilities as well. So um, being able to, fortunate enough to be able to find some really good people within the industry that also want the same that I want, so yeah. That's yeah. how Hold Your Own's kind of evolved and grown. Yeah. yeah. That's great. And look, like you mentioned as well, you have. You've, you've built, from from what I can see and what a lot of other people will give you feedback on, is like a really tight niche sort of culture mm. you know, within the facility. And I think it's important, as you mentioned, to give back. Yeah. You know, and you have, you found other people like yourself who are like-minded for the most part. You've got similar things in common and you want to try and give that back to help other people enjoy their training more and like to be successful competitors. Yeah. So going back to your journey and, and through this time, what are some of the main obstacles that you, you faced and that you had to overcome? And that could be in, whether it was physical, it might be injuries, it might have been education, it might have been even getting a facility um, together, which is now, you know, in, in Burley, if you like. Yeah. Um, maybe talk us through some of those things uh, a little bit. Yeah, well, as a um, starting up the business, and again, another part of the reason why I started the business is what I was surrounded by, I'd been at some good facilities before. There was, I kind of started my education personally. Um, luckily enough, fell into finding someone who was very well educated uh, and the style of training that we're doing very much suited my style of how I, wanted, how I saw things. I was always very much against the grain of like what was happening at the time. So like I said, I got starved very early on. And that was a, I think um, it would have been very easily, easy for me to fall down the path of that's how it's done. 
Um, luckily enough for me, my brain is always questioning things. Uh, and so when I, when I went through that prep, I questioned there has to be a better way. Um, and so I just researched and I just researched and I researched and I'm, or I hate using the words research because I'm not a researcher, but I looked online, looked up on, uh, and started putting piece, little things and pieces together. Um, anyway, so that's, uh, and I was seeing other PTs out there coaching people the exact same way as what I got coached. I'm like, this isn't right. Um, and then from there, uh, that's where I was like, okay, I need to be able to, I started getting, gathering some more, better information uh, and started noticing that the way that I was coaching compared to a lot of the ways that other people were coaching, although it wasn't the norm at the time, and quite often, even the way I prepped myself into competitions was back in the day that we used to have, there was forums and all this sort of stuff online. Uh, I used to get no, ripped on. Uh, he's just a genetic freak. Uh, he doesn't need to cut water because he genetically doesn't hold us any water. Uh, all these sort of things. So I think it would have been very easily easy for me to sort of go, uh, this is just too hard. Uh, but lucky enough for me, since that time, since that 2008 period of time, evidence has started to come along to sort of support what I was always mindful of, the thinking that was just a, a more holistic way of being able to do things. Um, the training has definitely changed over the years, and I think injury-wise, uh, there has been some massive hurdles for me. It's always been a learning curve, I think, as well. Um, I've probably injured myself more than any other human, just about physically <laughs> possible. Uh, it's just one of those things where I'm, I'm injury-prone, but I, uh, I feel like I'm injury-prone. It may be the way that I started out as my, my uh, lifting it was very much a, a brutal style of training that was just, it was no holds bar. Mm. Uh, and the biggest hurdles of me being able to actually overcome what I thought was right previously. Um, you know, as stuff, keep, as stuff and evidence keeps coming out, I've got to keep changing and evolving as well. Uh, and I think it would have been easy for me just to sort of be very uh, pig-headed and stick to what I thought what I believe was right back at the time and not keep evolving. I think that's a big hurdle for a lot of people. I think that not evolving and wanting to keep learning is, is something uh, that holds people back. So sure. um, I think, uh, yeah, the injuries have, have, have always been a hurdle. I've had surgeries. I've, I've had a surgery about three years ago. Two years ago. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's gone fast, but yeah. it's gone that fast. <laughs> yeah. Two years ago, I, had, uh, I tore my labrum in my right hip, uh, and so I had, had to get that repaired. Uh, and uh, well, FAI, however, any, if people out there that know what FAI yeah. is, femoral acetabular impingement. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there's a few, few people, a fair few people within the, especially more strength based sports, who, who've had it, so they would definitely know. There is a, it's a lot of people, uh, it's funny, when I never had heard of the injury, ever before and then all of a sudden I get it uh, <laughs> and now I know so many people have had it uh, and I, mine is a genetic factor unfortunately my brother also has it as well and he's a fighter nice. uh, so it's something that it was a it's more of a genetic factor we have um, a deformity of our hip, of our hip socket or hip architecture um, more, more 
not the actual uh, hip itself, but it's actually the the femur, the, the top of the femur. So we've got a thing called pistol grip deformity, um, where the the femur where it then goes up into the cam and the, the, the actual head of the socket of the femur, it's shaped more like an old school pistol. Right. And so then it pinches in the top of our, um, the acetabulum. So yeah, it's just one of those things that I've, I, I'd like I said, it was one of those things that probably for me, it was inevitable that it was gonna actually happen doing what I'm doing. Um, and I had to get that reshaped out and there's a, probably a high possibility that it, probably go again just or my other people probably go eventually over time because that's just so that's the way my hip was shaped um but yeah it like i said that's been a massive hurdle it's also been a massive learning curve like before i did uh before i had those sort of injuries i never used to do put a whole lot of effort into warm up I used to warm up a bit but it has made me appreciate and uh have to learn a lot more about the warm-up strategies and what can be uh, how to better optimize training and work yourself around injuries because I think injuries although they definitely set you back in progression they also are a big learning tool um, because otherwise you would just just keep battering away and potentially not optimize your, tra your own training yeah mm. yeah and look having that what I would call like a growth mindset and that ability to learn from things that, you know, they're not always great. These things are not something that we'd ever go, yeah, I, I want to have a hip injury or something like no. that, impingement. Oh, yeah. But it's... I wouldn't wish those type of injuries upon anyone. Yeah. But it definitely has uh, taught me a lot. It's taught me not just not a lot about that sort of stuff, but patience. I was a very impatient human being. Uh, and I've become... I believe now a lot more of a patient human being across the board in my life as well. So there's a lot of other life lessons I've I think that's my personality. I've been able to, I always make sure I draw and learn from my, um, from life. And uh, some people will like, potentially might not go down that path, but I've always someone that is like, ah, oh, well it happened for a reason. Mm. What was the reason behind it? And mm. so for me, I've, tried to always draw from that and I think I've done okay with being able to do that. And like I said, I could have not learnt from my lesson of when I first competed, but I decided to try and learn from it and try and see if there was something better out there. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. like try and break it down and, yeah. and assess what worked, what didn't. And I think it is a good mind frame to have to always question things like in, in, a, in a positive way. Yeah. You know, it's not like, oh, you know, that's wrong. That's wrong, exactly. I'm, not ever say, I'm never saying anything that's wrong as yeah. such. I'm like, well, is there a better way? Yeah, and is then exploring that. Yeah, um, and then exploring that. If, I, if that's the best, if I end up finding out that at that point in time, that's what's saying that is the best way of doing it, then great. But you, nothing is ever, nothing's ever solid. Yeah, it's never concrete. Yeah, it's always like concrete. new evidence. Exactly. And we look back and we go, oh, that was not quite right. And then five years later, oh, actually, it was better than we thought. And yeah. then it's always evolving. Like well, I programmed right? two years ago, two, three years ago to how I can program now is different. Yeah. You know, it's something that I, like, I could have said that was solid. I could have kept that sort of style of programming, but I haven't because I've always like, okay, I love my own programming. That's why I like, I generally- You gotta back yourself. I gotta back <laughs> myself and I enjoy, I, I think like, I like the way that I program, but I know that there is, it, I could evolve it and I'm, yeah. I look forward to every time, every 
six months, a year going, ah, this is what I could add to this or this is what I could do to it. And so I've been able to I do that very regularly with everything I do. Which is which is good yeah. because you're always innovating yeah. and you're always moving forward and you've probably looked back on past programs and thought, what was I thinking? Yeah, 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 but yeah, yeah, it's a lack of better word yeah. sometimes, but then also like, oh, okay, that's actually, that's interesting. Yeah, what was I thinking? But then, oh, okay, I see my methodology, yeah, but I'm, now how it's changed. I mean, hindsight's yeah. a great thing, right? But then you go, wow, like, you don't even realize sometimes how much you've evolved, yeah. and you're like, oh, like, man, I'm, I have so much more experience now. It's not that it's about good and bad and better and worse. It's like, okay, well, now my knowledge behind why I program yeah. like this is so much more, like, holistic if yeah. you like but also well-rounded to create these yeah. better programs for people yeah so i think uh yeah and i've a lot of the programs that i've done has been um something where i've pulled bits and pieces of programming from other other um coaches and stuff like that and made it made them into my own i think uh i've looked at what's out there uh, and what research has been done. I look at how other people are programming at the time and I'm like, okay, how can I build, how do I best, how do I feel is best to put all this information together? Mm-hmm. And that's the sum of how I program, that's the sum of how I uh, prep people for competitions, it's the sum of how I do everything. I don't copy, I, don't, I try not to copy anyone, I try to make sure that, um, but if I find there's some good parts of someone's of what someone's doing, I'm like, oh, that's awesome, um, and I'm like, oh, oh, let's try that, or let's, mm-hmm. let's, I'm willing to put that into my programming, uh, and I'll put it into my programming how I feel is the best way to be put be put into it. Oh, I'll be like, oh, that's that's interesting how they've done that. I would, it's a good way of doing it, but I would potentially maybe tweak it this way. Yeah, exactly. and that's how I think is is always good. You kind of always, as a coach, you've always got to have your own ideas around how things should be done as well exactly and it's good to acknowledge that because like you said you don't necessarily have to or in a, in a way of saying it reinvent the wheel if something yeah. works and we know okay well we look at say most strength-based programs they're probably going to have a squat bond a squat uh, squat bench and deadlift variation in them mm. but then it's within the individuality and the specificity yeah. of the coach and the client where it gets individual i think that's a recent misconception got to have templates of your, how you program, but then you've also got to be willing to individualize them to your client uh, or the person. So um, you're like, okay, this is a good set amount of volume for the average person, and then you get a client, they will come to you with how they, um, what they've been doing previously, and you're like, okay, here's roughly what I do, and then you've got to try and mold it to be able to do be, not so much to the point where you're completely, like, yeah, you might have to, Re, re, um, rehaul someone's programming or something like that a little bit, but you don't want to completely go from zero to 100. I think uh, uh, finding out someone's volume landmarks is very important. Um, you know, and I credit that sort of stuff to you know, Mike Isretail uh, and with his sort of volume landmark stuff, um, MRV and MV and all that sort of stuff. So uh, I think you know, being able to individualize your own methodology, like, okay, this is my methodology, this is how, what I think, and this is how I program, and uh, then going, okay, how do I best attribute that to the to the client, and how can I best build them from where they currently are to slowly progressing them over time. You don't want to call the sun, try and give them the absolute most that they you think uh, 
someone should be doing when that person only just beginning. Sure. Would, would, would you agree then, something I've found in my own experience is that the more advanced a client or athlete may be, the more individuality, specificity, and I guess for lack of better words, complexity a program may or can have in terms of the percentages or the RPE or perhaps some of the advancements in the progression of lifts where we've, and again, hate to use the word, but say more generalized mm -hmm. population or someone who's perhaps new to training, um, there's there's less complexity. I, I would almost be feel guilty because I would have these templates at work and I would go, well, well, that definitely works. The individuality comes in terms of the coaching cues and perhaps usually the lifting uh, volume because I have a 40 kg female and then I've got a 100 kilo man, obviously they're going to lift different weights. Um, would you say that for the most part, that is true where the more advanced the athlete, the more complex the program may need to be within those specific yeah, um, concepts? Yeah, I think that when someone's getting started, there is such a thing as new gains mm -hmm. they can literally go in there and do not a whole lot and still get progress. benefit and progress from that yeah um whereas you start doing it as an advanced lifter and going in there and just randomly have having at a, at a session um you're probably not going to keep being progress mm -hmm. so yeah like uh, i think there does have to be and then once you start to get to the point where there's um for a bodybuilder, for example, like as a as a newbie, you kind of go, okay, we just want to make general growth. We just want to be able to progress and keep making. Like if someone, if I had a, I had a young kid come to me and he was, um, he's like, oh, I want to be a bodybuilder. I'm like, okay, great. I'm like, you'd probably just try and get them to just, let's put on some muscle mass all over. Mm -hmm. There would be no specificity to the sort of body parts potentially. They might say that they might want to grow their arms or something like that, but you know that they're probably going to grow all over pretty rapidly anyway. Then once you start getting someone who's a bit more advanced and it's like they've competed and you kind of can start seeing some um, some flaws in their physique, that's when you can start growing some, putting some specificity to body parts. Um, so for bodybuilders, that's kind of it. Uh, and then obviously you've got to also uh, have the specificity and the individualization to a client that can handle certain amount of certain amount of volumes. Some other clients that can't handle that much amount of volume, so you've got to pull back on that sort of stuff. So then you gotta try and find their, their volume landmarks. Um, whereas with powerlifters, you're kind of looking at, you're breaking it down even more. Again, you're trying to find out how much volume they can handle, but you're also then trying to find out uh, where their weaknesses are in certain points of the lifts and where they're breaking down in lift performances. So for a squat, um, are their hips shooting up uh, at the bottom of the squat so their hips shoot up faster than their, than their shoulders? How can we fix that? So then you've potentially, are there, is there a warm-up strategy that we need to work on? Is there exercise selection that we need to, to add to be able to strengthen certain body, certain areas that doesn't allow that to happen anymore? Um, is there any tightness so that potentially could be happening? Um, bench press, if your lockout's bad, okay, how do we fix lockouts? Deadlifts, is there a lockout? Again, another one quite common is deadlifts. Is, uh, is the lockout quite, uh, how's that being affected? And, it's funny with a deadlift, uh, I've had, uh, there's never a one, one, fits, one shoe fits all sort of uh, approach to it. I've had clients where their lockout's bad, you give them a rack pull up, which you, or you a rack pull um, or a block pull, however you want to do it. And um, they've had, I've had clients that have 
that's improved it. Then I've had other clients have done absolutely nothing. Like for me, for example, rack pulls have no carryover to my lockout whatsoever. Mm -hmm. uh, but you give me a, a deficit deadlift, uh, all of a sudden that will improve my lockout. So pulling the length, because what will happen is something where is that is the range of motion is far is a lot greater. Mm -hmm. So uh, there is time and attention for that amount of upwards uh, movement of the concentric phase of it is longer, uh, which means there's more energy output towards it. So for me, it makes the movement longer, which means I can then when I go back to being a little bit shorter, it's easier for me because there's less time and attention with that. And I'm able to pull a little bit longer, a little bit easier at the end. And so I'm able to recruit a little bit more energy and uh, towards the end of the lift. Mm -hmm. So, um, again, trying to work out these nuances of, okay, one shoe doesn't fit all, uh, this person's got a bad lockout, it may not be what you think it'd be. Like if you can keep hammering away on rack pulls and it's not improving, maybe change your approach. Shortening the movement wasn't, uh, wasn't working for that person, let's lengthen the movement, let's make it a deficit deadlift, or let's work on a, a muscular, uh, you know, musculature. So are there traps of weakness? All of a sudden, we need to work on potentially doing some bodybuilding movements, some accessory movements to actually help build up the strength and the muscle in uh, that we need to build up. So, doing something like a shrug or some high pulls or something like that might actually help that sort of stuff out. So, you've got to kind of start breaking it down a lot more. So, whereas like I said at the beginner stage, give them a program, make sure it's got some progression model to it, uh, and you should see that they, they probably will progress pretty well. Yeah, I love what you said there about like having that approach where it's a bit like trial and error, right? Mm. You're going in there with a client and it's not always a one size fits all. I think that's a great sort of yeah. terminology to have because that is then going, if you have that, it's kind of like you're going in with the mindset of being very tunnel visioned. Yeah. Again, going back to what you said earlier about this is, what, this is the way I program, this is what works, this is how it's always going to be rather than going, well, maybe there's something else I can do. Maybe there's a little bit more I need to read up on or perhaps get some information on or try something yep. different. That is, again, logical, right? Yep. Like you said, if someone's struggling with a certain part of the lift or a certain muscle group is undeveloped, let's train that muscle group yep. a little bit. Let's, let's see what can happen. Um, and then sort of getting that feedback and then when you come across that problem again, might not be the solution, but at least you've got another tool, if you like, in your yep. toolkit to, to use. Oh, um, so to segue into the more programming side of things, apart from some of the things that you've already mentioned, how do you like to program? I know you use a system called Recomp. Yep. What are some of the sort of interventions of that and how does that help you program for clients? And perhaps could you talk us through, especially for some of the athletes listening, because I know there'll be a bit of a digression between more of the, the strength sport athletes in terms of powerlifters and bodybuilders. Can you talk us through the, the main differences of how you program, apart from what you've already mentioned? And then also, there's a bit of a sweet spot in the middle. There's a terminology that's popped up over the last couple of years, power builders, yep. which I know is, is very much kind of how some of us train here mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of other athletes as well, where we utilize those big three powerlifting movements, but then we kind of got that bodybuilding work as well. Yep. Perhaps talk us through how one can program for that and, and be smart without, not necessarily overtraining, but under recovering, yep. if you like. Well, I'll start off with the, the tool that we use for programming. So we use a system called, like a system called Recomposer um, that was developed by uh, Damon Hayhow. Uh, and from my 
my research and looking into think like what sort of is out there, uh, I think it's probably the most complete programming tool that there is out there. It allows me to sort of literally customize and build a program from scratch. I can add exercise a day, add a like add a day, add an exercise, add sets. What percentages I want to be working at? What if I want to have a rep target? I can add a rep target. If I don't want to have a rep target, I just want them to sort of go, to, you know, as close to failure as possible. Um, I can do that. I can then also allow that. That gives leaves up to the person. I can also go. I want you to train at this RPE if I wanted them to. Um, it, it's a tool, it's a programming which allows me to sort of really customize everything to a client. So like I said, it's not. A, I don't have an Excel spreadsheet template that I'm just like, this is what this is what I want you to train, and I'd send that out to every single person. Uh, yes, I'm able to build templates on that and keep them, but then it allows me to completely edit those as well. So every time I have a client, I can go in and go, here's the template. I'm like, okay, I want to. This client doesn't handle this much amount of volume. Let's delete some sets here and there, um, and then be able to track that. And it's a good tool. Um, but it, but what it does is it also allows it up to the to the coach to be able to make it a good tool. Uh, you can have some people on there that have this amazing tool and pro the programming's subpar. Um, so it's very clean. It's not Excel spreadsheets. And a lot of guys out there's a little bit different. So a lot of people out there are using Excel spreadsheets. Uh, that's been the going way of how everything's been done. Sure. It's kind of combining. It's Combining the app, an app-related type of, of programming, into like a software, and it just allows me to be able to program really well. So we use that. It also has a, a nutrition function on there where I can build a, a rigid meal plan if I wanted to, or set macros up for someone. It all calculates everything out for them. Um, I'm always a big fan of whenever we get a new client, I'll actually still write them a meal plan. Um, with the macros and everything attached to it, because so I think although I'm like, you don't have to stick to this. Yeah, yeah, it's I a good example. It's an example of how you, I get them to write them. What sort of foods do you like to eat throughout your day? Sure. They'll they'll send me a list of foods and stuff like that. I get an idea of how much they're eating, um, and then I'm like, okay, this is how I would personally plan out a meal plan. Yeah. Uh, you can adjust this however you want. But this is how I would, if I was to have that amount of food, this is how I think would be best fitted throughout your day. For sure. You know, they give me an idea of when they're training, when their work hours are and that sort of stuff, sleep hours and stuff. So it allows me to be able to build something like that. But then also attach the macros on it. I can also then break it down into meals if I really wanted to um, and things like that. And it gives them an understanding like, ah, oh, okay, cool. I can see how he has evenly spread his protein portions out throughout the day. I can see how he's put carbohydrates pre and post training a little bit more heavier than he has throughout the other parts of the day. I can see where he's put fats throughout the, the day. So they can start to understand, okay, this is how someone who's, who I'm coming to for their expertise would program, you know, sort out the food. Um, and then if they want to go off and flexible diet off that, they have that option. Um, so that's how we use that, the Recomposer app. Um, as for the other part of it, yeah. Uh, programming wise, again, it's very individualized for what we do. We have some powerlifters that are very powerlifting uh, 
Centric. Centric, yeah. Uh, where that's kind of their, their main critique. And they don't really want to put muscle on as much. They want to get the max, the yeah. maximum out of the lifts that they're doing. They want to squat bench and dead heavier. They want to get strong. Strong. They want to be able to... And in, I've, what I find is in natural powerlifting, guys aren't necessarily wanting to go up weight classes. They want to try and get the maximum amount out of the weight class that they're currently in. Sometimes putting muscle mass on, although that is a benefit of getting, you know, there's more tissue to be able to then contract and recruit, so then obviously you'll be able to lift more weight. Um, so some guys are like, well, I'm really good in my weight class. Going up to the next weight class, I'm, there's a fair bit of muscle I've got to put on. It means I'm not going to be good maybe for a few years. So some people don't want to progress to the next weight class. So it's just about working out how to keep progressing the big movements without putting too much muscle mass on mm. and pushing them out of that weight class. Whereas a lot of us who have that bodybuilder at heart, myself as one, yeah. um, a lot of the guys that are here, um, probably yourself as well. 100%. Yeah, we want to get strong, <laughs> but we also want to get jacked as well. You know, that's, oh, yeah. a, that's kind of <laughs> where we all started. We all started, I just want to be jacked. Yeah. Uh, so, um, that's kind of that power builder sort of programming, which is kind of a popularized, I think. I think Lane Norton's probably the one that probably popularized it the most, mm. although it was, he kind of just termed it, or someone's termed it, and yeah, whether he termed of... it or whether someone else termed it, he, he used oh, as well. Right. But yeah, I think, um, I like terming it as well. Um, I think it's a really good term because I think it allows that progression of strength, which I think is, um, can be done while also improving uh, hypertrophy. Um, I've always been the biggest believer of like, it, like yeah, for those powerlifters that want to stay under, um, stay under certain weight classes, yeah, you do the big movements and then you just do the accessories that help to be able to not create any imbalances or potentially improve the movement that they're doing. If they've got any weaknesses in those movements, that's all you're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. uh, as a bodybuilder at heart, I still, I, I program, like I'm, I'm currently doing a powerlifting prep um, while I'm still doing some arm focused training at the same time. Who would, what powerlifter <laughs> in their right mind would powerlift and go, I also want to build on my arms. But I think it's still achievable. I think it's, especially in powerlifting, but I think it's something that's very low fatigue. Uh, so the, it's, uh, it's quite high um, stimulus, like you get great pump, uh, you know, you potentially could, you can still allocate a fair amount of volume to it without the fatigue, um, you know, it withdrawing from your fatigue management. Sure. Um, so, um, I think that's where the power builder inside me comes along. I'm like, yeah, I can progress in my strength, my squat bench and dead very well, but I can also make sure so I'm making some progress other areas. Yes. Uh, and whether, that, if I wanted to do a chest focused, as long as it's not taking away from my strength and my bench press, it, it probably wouldn't it only benefit it. If I wanted to do a chest focus, um, focus, I would potentially put some more accessory movements around there to be able to focus. So that's where the, I think power building has its play. Um, and I think, it's a, I, still, I think it's a smart way to go about it because um, as I touched on before, at heart I am just trying to get stronger. I just want to be the strongest person I can possibly be. If it means it knocks me out of a weight class, so be it. 
yeah. it means I've got more muscle, which means it's only going to improve my bodybuilding as well. Because it's not, it's, it, again, it's for us, I think, for the like said, because we want it. It's that holistic view of, yes, we want to be strong, but we want to look good, but we want to be like, what can you do with it too? It's not about just going to a meet and be on the pole and like win the meet. It's like, what what can I do? Like, how can I improve on what I've done in all of those facets yes. rather than just for one day, I can just pull this and beat dying yeah, blue shorts over there. Like, yeah, I yeah, don't want to limit the amount of progress I can make, uh, you know, muscular wise for six months while I'm prepping for a powerlifting comp, yeah. when yeah. I could have made some progress as well at the same time without hindering the strength results that I could have gotten. I think that's where a lot of guys that do switch between the two um, sports of bodybuilding and powerlifting kind of get it wrong. Yeah. Um, they kind of never become, uh, they never become good at both because they're constantly either just focusing on one or just focusing on the other. So while one they're focusing on they're deteriorating in the other and all of a sudden they start bodybuilding and they forget about their big movements as much and that starts dropping back and so they just know whereas I'm always focusing on my big movements and I'm always focusing on still trying to make some muscular gains mm. uh, and I'm just making sure that like in, a, in this period of time where I'm doing I am actually prepping for a powerlifting meet yeah majority of my volume is going towards squat bench and dead but I'm also making sure that, okay, what can I potentially work on that's not going to be too fatiguing? My arms, I always want to work, Everyone wants. everybody wants to work with my arms. Mm. So it's like, I'll allocate a shit ton of volume to my arms as well, and I'll do the accessory stuff for my, for my chest, shoulders, and, um, and back to make sure that I, my shoulders stay healthy, um, and lots of stuff, and I at least go into maintenance volume with my, you know, my back, uh, and uh, lots of stuff, and chest should be getting hit enough through the bench press to be able to, to maintain that as well. So shoulder-wise, I'll do enough to be able to maintain. Like again, lateral raises aren't too fatiguing, so I'm doing shit ton of volume on um, lateral raises, but something like a shoulder press, I wouldn't be doing too much volume in. So it's just about uh, being very smart about how you allocate the, the volume uh, and the stimulus to fatigue ratio, which is something that um, was very well termed by Mike Isertel. Um, what can you find that's very high stimulating? Uh, you can still make really good progress out, uh, but it's very low fatigue uh, in, the, in the ratio. So um, trying to manage, okay, what exercise, find what exercise are that, and then planting them into a powerlifting prep. And then when you're in a sort of a body, the other style of way of thinking, you know, so it's, let's say if I was going into a bodybuilding prep, yeah, yeah, I would definitely include still the three main lists. I think, I personally think they're very important to, as to keeping uh, maintenance of muscle tissue. Uh, and I think they still have a very big role in a, in a prep as such, um, for certain reasons. Um, we can get into that, but um, I think trying to maintain my strength so I'm not losing out on my, any sort of potential gains that I've made with my strength gains over the off season or whatever it is or while I've been powerlifting. Um, but then I will start allocating a lot more volume to obviously accessory stuff and start pushing up the volume per body parts and all that sort of stuff to try and really maximize stuff. Because the accessory stuff obviously isn't going to be as high fatigue. Sure. Um, fatiguing, so then I can start allocating more volume to that because the fatigue ratio is, is lower, stimulus to fatigue ratio is lower. Um, so it's it's something that then yeah you can start allocating that. So just switching those slight things. I think, like I said, too many people either go 
full powerlifting or full bodybuilder. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, it all it all it means is just a slight swing towards the other, mm. and that's all I think it really makes you do. And that's where you can potentially, and in my experience, uh, I'm like, I think I've done okay at it. You can be a good bodybuilder, uh, and then you can also be a, a good powerlifter. And you, you don't have to be mediocre at both. 100%. I think that's where other people go wrong. Yeah, like those. I guess it's like fine tuning, yeah. if you will, depending on what you're going. You've got a, you coined a term, strong looks strong, and I don't know if this is something that the next statement I'm gonna say is something that Josh Hampson got from you, because I know you guys like to have a little battle on yeah, <laughs> who started yeah. what. Um, Josh said to me a while ago when I was querying him about some of the big lifts and about some of the rep ranges, and anyway, he said, you know, Alex, Something you got to think about is, you know, a bigger muscle has the potential to be a stronger muscle and a stronger muscle has the potential to be a bigger muscle. Now, the logic in that is therefore that generally if you can recruit more muscle fibers and at some point if you can allocate more muscle fibers, therefore you have the potential to be able to lift more. And something that I've recently really got my head around in the fact that there's, there's a great analogy, and I don't know if it was Mike Israel or um, another practitioner who used it, Mike Tuchel or somebody, but they talked about it as basically you, you've got someone who's got a mass at the moment and our mass right now is, is capable of moving a certain load based on physics. Yeah. However, what we know is that strength is a skill and yeah. therefore the more we move through those neurological patterns, it's how, how well we can go from point A to point B. So for example, say a bench press, yeah. we've got point A to point B starting and finishing the movement and the more efficient we can get throughout that movement, the better we can yeah. manipulate our load. So. Like you said, it's a good example that you've got someone who doesn't want to go up a weight class, well, how the hell do they gain strength? Because we have people out there who would say that they have to gain muscle, not necessarily the case. They could become more efficient and more skillful in that movement. Yeah, but at some point, you, you are say a Nissan, you've got 200 brake horsepower and you're using all of your brake horsepower. And at some point, to go faster, you have to upgrade something, right? You have to upgrade the, the engine, the accelerator, the torque, the, you know, and, and then you can sort of level up. And I think it was a nice analogy because it's like, you've got a certain amount of horsepower, make the most of using everything that you've got, and then as you gain muscle, make sure you're maximizing all of that muscle mass towards strength. Yeah. Otherwise, you're kind of leaving stuff in the tank. So. Can you maybe talk about, in your opinion, your experience and relationship between strength and size and the importance of the two to maximize not only hypertrophy, but strength as well? 100%, and I think, okay, start with, I talk Josh over you guys. There it is, Josh. He's not in his matches No, um, but he's 100% right in saying that. Uh, I think, um, yes, you definitely there is that, uh, like you said, the ability to maximise what you have, but the musculature that you have and the strength that you can potentially get. Um, from there, it's a case of once you kind of, you know, create this, you know, that, you know, practicing of the skill over and over and over again, and you can constantly get better at practicing something. You can, you can keep grinding at that little bit extra, yeah. and that's where guys, where I was talking about before, where they. Uh, just want to stay in their weight class and they just want to be able to get better at the skill. So they're just practicing the skill over and over and over again and you grind out and you get little bits and pieces here and there. Um, that's great. But like I think when you think about it, like yeah, we want to try and maximize that but then when you want to progress from that, yeah, putting a little muscle on, I think that's where switching between, a little bit between what your potential 
uh, goal is at that point in time is great. So whether it's a purely strength or whether it's purely hypertrophy, um, is benefit. That's where you really want to have those nuances of switching between the two. And I think that going between the two is very, very smart thing to do. And that's where you'll see a lot of powerlifters in their off season. I don't think it's a very good idea to call it off season because in that period of time for the the power the powerlifter that wants to get really maximise just their strength that they potentially can ever get to, uh, in that off-season, that's where it's a really good opportunity to work on creating some more muscle tissue, and then once they actually then go into a prep for a powerlifting competition, um, they have more muscle tissue there to be able to then contract and get better at, uh, and then be able to recruit more muscle, um, muscle tissue, so their motor unit recruitment is better, everything like that. Um, and then therefore, potentially, they can then pull out some more strength. So um, I think, yeah, switching between the two, and like I said, in that period of time, it doesn't make sense to then go, okay, I'm gonna put some muscle on, I'm gonna forget about my, my big movements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it makes sense to be able to go, okay, yes, I'm going to now try and put some more muscle tissue on. I need to still make sure that I am practicing my movement, the, you know, the movements I'm doing if you're a powerlifter. Um, practicing those movements so I don't digress in those movements. So at least make sure that I'm doing some maintenance on that. Um, but then put a good, good amount of work into the um, to the accessory stuff to be able to uh, try and maximize and try and put some muscle muscle on this time. So then when I come back to really bring some focus into it, some skill acquisition into those movements, then all of a sudden I'm recruiting more muscle tissue. And then over that period of time where you're just practicing over and over and over and over again, um, yeah, you get better at recruiting better motor, more motor units within that muscle tissue, and then you, therefore you get stronger. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, which which makes sense. And I think from a logical standpoint as well, if we look at it from a pragmatic approach, from a scientific approach to a degree, when when you approach training, again, when we approach training, we look at building those you know movements or variations of squat, bench, and deadlifts, or you know pushes and presses and big compound movements in general. If if someone can do it, I think if someone has the ability, depending on their, their skill level or you know if they've got injuries that they have to work around, to be able to implement those um, tools within a program if they have any sort of goal of improving their body composition is smart, purely based on the fact that. I described it as you get more value for your money or more value for your return because you are you know, utilizing multiple energy systems, you're working multiple muscle groups. For example, if you were to go in and say work a squat versus go in and perhaps sit on a leg extension and a leg, uh, a leg curl, mm -hmm. it would arguably be better to utilize the squat because again, it can cause more muscle fatigue, etc. But you're working all those energy systems, you're working even more muscle groups, yeah. which I think People don't look at it uh, in a, a, a rounded view. Again, they look at the squat and go, oh, it's, it's just legs, where really it's a full body movement. Yeah. I mean, a good example I like to use is we've got these big movements and anyone who can effectively squat, bench and deadlift two to three times of their body weight is gonna have big muscles in and around. For example, they're gonna have to have a certain size arms to be able to hold onto that yeah. deadlift. Their traps, their... it's a nice way to look at development of we've got a a blank canvas and if we start to build a picture we just want to get our paint we're going to get the main sort of things on the on the board to create it and then you know the fine tuning is more of the the accessory lifts and the specificity depending on how, like you said before how the athlete develops so when you're programming 
for physique athletes or more of you, again, yeah. to general population. Are these movements something that you would always include if and when the athlete can or the, the client at this point can do those movements? And is that something that you'd agree with? 100%. So what I, th I think people forget that strength strength is a strength in the end. Like I think what the squat bench and dead have do for just general strength all around for other exercises is is I, I, look I, I don't know if this is if this is 100 true or not but this is what I find they like if you're someone who can deadlift 300 kilos or more and um I think you're it's going to help out but getting you stronger at being able to do a lat pull down um you're going to be able to just, just generally stronger all around you're going to probably be able to pull you know on a lat pull down over 100 kilos for reps and those type of things. Whereas um, someone who's not quite deadlifting that much, and I think that has to come down to um, whether it's nervous system, um, whether you can build, this is a funny term, but it's build strength within the nervous system. So everything has to actually grow and strengthen mm -hmm. as, a, as a system itself. Makes sense. Um, Makes sense. So if I, can get, if I can get someone to just get stronger at squat bench and dead, it's going to potentially improve the ability to therefore get stronger in other in the accessory movements as well. So I think both of them come back to each other. Yes, building more muscle tissue will then allow for better contractions to be able to move more weight, but then also when you actually are able to handle you know, certain loads um, within the nervous system, going back to holding 100 kilos on a lap pull down feels light within your hand. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, light within the muscle, because it's hot, you start being tensing and holding on the 300 kilos, all of a sudden you've got to pull 100 kilos, it's not so hard on you. Um, whereas someone who's only deadlifting, you know, 150 kilos or 100 kilos, to then try and get them to lap pull down 100 kilos as well, uh, it, you know, it just feels heavy within their hand as well. So I think they both have a really good carryover. Um, and whether that means that it's, it's your getting stronger within the nervous system, um, and then that's helping you be able to handle more loads and handle more fatigue um, within those, within doing the accessory movements, I, I don't know, but um, I think both of them, like yeah, obviously the strength side of things uh, and the powerlifting side of things definitely has a very good carryover to also be then being able to handle more loads within the accessory movements as well. Yeah, so there's sure that answer your question. No, 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 it does. It, like there's a there's a relationship between the two, and there's a benefit. There's a benefit um, yeah. depending on your goal. So before I get into my next question, to so just dig a bit deeper on that, let's talk about that specific to female um, clientele yeah. and demographic because there is a, a fear I feel from experience when we prescribed strength training for females who want to improve their body composition, you know, reduce body fat, and they want to, they come in and they want to be toned, they want to be tight. They use these descriptive words, and, and what we know from body composition is really, in, in relation to that, there's, there's two main variables, you know, there's the lean mass and, and then there's the body fat, and I think, how do you approach the education towards females to take away some of their fears or misconceptions about gaining too much muscle mass, and because they're doing these strength-based movements or that they are going to possibly get too big and, and not have that desirable fit sort of physique that they want um, rather than 
we see a lot of women that will go in and do things like a lot of smith machine it's very accessory or they'll do a lot of like cable kicks and and they have their place for sure but perhaps again they're putting the car before the horse as in they're not prioritizing these bigger movements and perhaps these bigger movements that they fear that would get them too big or that they wouldn't do the job because they don't want to be a strength athlete would actually get them better results and then they could couple with them perhaps these smaller more accessory lifts which don't really have as much clout um, if that makes sense, could you talk a little bit about your experience with that? If you if you have much, I'm sure you do, because I know there's some amazing females that have come out of Hold Your Own who utilize all these big three lifts, and you would not look at them and go power lift there. You would go, wow, that's a really fit feminine physique. I think you know your wife Sophie being a good example of that. I think it comes down to uh, the education of uh, the role of nutrition on um, on muscle growth as well. Okay, so I think. Where it comes to is the education of uh, of trying to educate females around nutrition, and I think the different roles and um, goals between uh, what you're trying to achieve. Um, so I think as males, we're trying to maximise the amount of muscle mass that we potentially get. Most people, most guys, are trying to do that. Um, so we would potentially look at try and get them into a surplus, a greater surplus, to try and maximise the ability to be able to put muscle tissue on and all that sort of stuff. With females, what we're trying to do is we're trying to make them be more adaptable to the amount of food that they're trying to do. So they're not necessarily getting themselves into a higher surplus as such. We're just trying to, yeah, get them to the point where they're comfortable with the amount of food that they're eating. Most girls want to be in shape and all that sort of stuff. They don't want to put on a whole bunch of muscle mass. They don't want to get stronger. Um, but it's about trying again, like I said, when you go into a, you know, into a big surplus and you educate them about surpluses and deficits and maintenance amount of, amount of food, um, putting them into, you know, increasing their food, you know, quicker than, uh, in, for guys, we might increase their food a little bit quicker because we want to try and get them into a little bit greater of a surplus so then we can maximise some, some muscle gain. Um, whereas with a, with a girl, we're like, okay, we don't want to try and maximise, we don't want to get into a surplus to be able to maximise the amount of, of um, you know, muscle mass that we can potentially put in. So we're going to potentially, like after, let's say we go through a dieting phase, which is generally most girls want to come to you, they generally want to get leaner first. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got to try and educate them on, okay, we're going into a, a deficit stage. Uh, and if this girl comes to me straight away, I don't want to put on muscle, um, I just want to get lean. Like, okay, that's great. You you teach them the benefits of um, you know strength training to sort of be able to create a better shape. Um, and you know, being in a deficit, we they're not going to be able to put on much muscle tissue at this point in time anyway. So don't you have to worry about that? It's when we're into a surplus, and then you've got to try and teach them. Okay, when we go into a surplus, there's to maximise muscle tissue. Um, growth, uh, hypertrophy, you want to also be in a reasonably decent um, surplus. So with you, what we're going to do is not going to go down that path. We're going to try and reverse diet you out so we can actually uh, increase the calories that you're eating, but at a, at a rate that's slow enough that your body's adaptation is quickly adapting to those amounts of food. Um, it takes a little bit more patience, I think, for girls, as I said, coming out of competition, um, uh, Unfortunately for them, they probably have to be a little bit more patient than guys. Guys can get straight into, okay, I want to try and um, get back into growing some muscle. Whereas girls are like, ah, oh, I want to try and keep my figure. 
For sure. And like, okay, so it's a little bit of like, okay, well, yeah, that's fine. If you want to keep your figure um, and keep your we can still grow your food up, but it's just going to take a little bit more patience. Uh, whether they can handle that sort of stuff, it's, it's individual. individual mm-hmm. But um, we need to make sure that you're sort of educating them around the, the surplus and the deficit maintenance amount of food that we need to consume. And then we also need to make sure that we sort of, with their training, like let's say, um, they just want to maintain the amount of muscle mass. We're not trying to then constantly improve the amount of volume in their training that they're doing. We're just trying to make sure at that point in time, just keeping potentially the same amount of volume. Volume has more correlation to uh, to muscle tissue growth, so hypertrophy than it does to strength. But we're also, with, the, with their list, we're maybe trying to go a little bit more higher intensity. Um, or just sort of like I said, try and work on that specificity of the movements and stuff like that. So. And, they're not necessarily going down the path of giving them a lot of arm exercises and keeping the volume on those type of body parts with it. So they might feel like, I don't want to get big arms, I don't want to get this, and you go, okay, cool. Well, what we'll do is we'll still include a couple of exercises in there, but we're just not going to do a lot of them. And so we'll put more exercises into the body parts that you may want to grow. And at the moment, glutes is the, the end thing to grow. So it's like, okay, we'll put all the exercises into in the volume into glutes. Um, so yeah, I think it's just around the education of not just their training, but the nutrition together and how they correlate to how, I think it, and that's all it is. And like I said, a lot of girls just don't have that education. For guys, they don't necessarily need, sometimes it's funny, some, for guys they don't necessarily need the education, they just like need to be told, I need to eat more, I need to eat roughly this amount of food, I need to eat this much amount of protein, I need to eat just generally more, uh, and I need to get stronger. Whereas girls, it's like they're trying not to get at that point, they, yeah, they want to get stronger, but they're like trying not to grow muscle and all that sort of stuff. So it's, you got to educate them as to why or why we're able to do these type of things without you acting. And it's not going to actually result in putting too much muscle tissue on. Mm, for sure. And that's good. I think that's a good explanation, uh, having that approach around education and coupling the two. Because, again, nutrition is a massive, if not more important part mm. than just the training itself yeah. and setting those expectations going forward. I think something as well that is worth mentioning, which I try and put forward is that if, you know, sometimes it's a bit of naivety from women, they go, yeah, I'm gonna get big, and we sort of go, well, you know, it's not as easy as that. Like, yeah. you, <laughs> if it was that easy, you know what I mean? And also, yeah, yeah. The, the, you know, I think girls are a little bit more complex, not only in their makeup, but, you know, hormonally, etc., yeah. which is not a bad thing, um, but it's something that we have to factor in and acknowledge and talking to them about that, you know, unless they are taking any performance enhancing sort of um, supplementation, they don't really have the minerals to add as much muscle mass or have the potential to as a male, obviously, from testosterone and estrogen yeah. sort of ratios, etc. And that sometimes when they do add that lean mass, as, as you said, with that education, it's not going to be like big slabs of muscle, it's more going to give them those things that they described to us at the start, like that tone, that lean, yeah. like that fit, that tight figure. It's which around wording with, it with is. girls, yeah. It is, it um, is. But you also got to, you got to also get to tell, let, let them know that their starting point, a lot of girls go, I don't want to look, get too muscular, mm-hmm. I don't to look like a man. And I'm like, your starting point is probably almost at 50% of what a man is actually is, mm. what the man's um, starting point is. So they, men in general, we just have naturally more lean muscle or yeah. lean, more, more lean tissue. So, um, so our starting point is well ahead of what you are. There's probably not. So there's some. Uh, there's a lot of evidence out there that suggests that girls and guys' growth factors are actually 
potentially reasonably similar um, from what I've, from what I've read. But uh, the difference is is the starting point. You know, you know, you get the average size girl, one hundred and sixty centimeters, one hundred sixty, one hundred seventy centimeters. Their lean mass that they potentially got at that point in time was around forty five kilos. Um, but the, this is an average, and it's kind of a, from clientele that I've worked with over time. So their average lean mass might be around 45 kilos. You get a guy that's 160, 170 kilos, their average lean mass at that point in time is probably 65 kilos. They're starting 20 kilos ahead of you. Uh, so the starting natural average of each male to female, the male is far, far ahead. So if a male goes from 65 to 85 kilos lean mass, he's a, now... A, a big natural athlete. Mm-hmm. You take a girl, it's going to take a lot of work to get to eight, yeah. a lot of work to get to sort of 65 kilo lean mass, but then they're all of a sudden, they're, they're not an 85 kilo human at the same height. So it's, they're never going to get to the point of looking as big as a male because their starting point is a lot further behind. Mm. Yeah. So it's all um, uh, re- respective or the word I'm looking for, relative, relative uh, yeah. is the word to, to them. And I think... There was, I think females have the ability from a nervous system point of view to recover faster possibly as well based on some literature, um, which I don't know, again, if there's enough to prove that. And I think that's based on, again, their ability to tolerate pain via childbirth, etc. Yeah. Um, but again, it's relative because the loads they're generally pushing is not as much, but then relative to their body weight, they can be quite strong. I think as well, there are some, you know, really talented, natural, um, strong, I mean, Selena Wilkie being one, you know, an amazing um, powerlifter, very strong natural athlete, they can definitely get there, but like, wow, that's, it does take work. Yes. I think kind of putting that expectation in place, like, look, it's not just going to happen, like, you still need to work hard, but if, you know, if you were to get quite muscular, it's going to take some real serious oh, effort, and yeah. don't worry, we're not going to put you in that position if you don't want to, we're going to work smarter and derive, like you said, more of that volume, more of that nutrition based on what they want to achieve yeah. uh, as well, which I think is really good. And thank you for that explanation because I think there's a lot of um, females out there with uh, unfortunately a lot of mis- misinformation and they end up doing a lot more but getting a lot less yeah. rather than it's working more. The starting more point is a, way, is a lot further behind than, than males naturally are. Mm. Uh, and then like I said, for males to get to being 85 kilo lean mass takes Years yeah. and years, and that's years and years of persistent hard work. Yes. Of all of a sudden trying to put on twenty kilos of lean mass on, I'm like, you don't. That's 10, 15 years potentially yeah. of work. I'm like, you're not going. If you don't want to take it there, you just don't have to take it there. You can keep training hard, but you don't have to keep training in a matter of trying to put, you know, muscle tissue on. You can do other things. You can stick back at maintenance volume and and train well for what you've got, but just maintain what you've got. So. Um, yeah, it's just around that sort of education of like, this is where you're at, this is what, you know, guys are, you know, you're just this different starting points and then the amount of time it takes to get there is, yeah, like I said, it's just a, um, it's very relative to each each person, so, mm. yeah. Mm. I, think, I think the irony as well there is sometimes a lot of females will fall in love with the process and the journey, like, like ourselves here, and the Iron Game, and sometimes they end up doing things they didn't expect, like they may compete, or they may really go, I actually want to get strong, like, this is really fun, and know, based on experience, a lot of women, when you teach them the big main movements, they love it, like, they feel empowered, like, I don't know one female that I work with that doesn't love ripping a deadlift off the floor, Yeah, like, it's like they, for 
back in my um, earlier, early, early days of PTing in New Zealand, like I found a lot of women like boxing because generally as a woman showing aggression or being aggressive is not something that they generally do. And so to smash it out on a pad, they really like that. And yeah. that same intensity can be crossed over into like a deadlift and a squat. And it yeah, empowers so. women to feel stronger um, and build more confidence and that is a carryover into the way they feel as well. And yeah. I think it's holistic. And I think it's great. And I really like to support that because I think it's something where a lot of women would benefit from if they incorporated those exercises. And I think a lot of women, if they did, would be much happier with their physiques and also all of the other benefits that come with it. I think it. that's a great point. I think, yeah, like I said, I've, I've, never, I've never done any sort of boxing style of training or anything with, um, with clients or anything like that. But I think, yeah, you, you're right where girls probably might you know they little girls seem to um draw get drawn to sort of those type of things because yeah it empowers them and then all of a sudden i think they can still find that same empowerment out of you know training and lifting if they um if they, if they go down that path so yeah i've had a lot of um clients who have become who have become successful bikini clients or whatever it is and be quite strong mm. all, all, all of a sudden they've done bikini comps and like i now want to just get strong yeah. You know, so yeah, something um, that when they came to you it would was not have been in their yeah, interest. Yeah, not in their interest at all. It's like I just want to compete in a bikini competition. It's all like sexy. Yeah, a lot of online clients who, who for, over the years that have yeah, been bikini competitors and done quite well, and then they're like, okay, yeah. And I've included you know the you know the big movements in their in their training, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, I really enjoyed them. I just really enjoyed getting stronger on them. Um, and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, I'm at my squat's at 85 kilos, I'm so close to getting to 100 kilos, let's keep working, so I want to try and get, my new goal is to get to 100 kilo squat. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, a lot of lot of women, uh, it's, it's just, yeah, they, they come in with certain goals of trying to, you know, look at their physique and trying to, you know, get this bikini body, but then all of a sudden they, they, they do get empowered by being able to just be stronger, and I think that's a really good thing. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, I'd love to talk more about that, respectful of your time, coming close to, to wrapping it up. Before we do, there's a couple of rapid fire questions that at the end I'd like to ask all my guests. It's a bit more lighthearted, it's a bit of fun, and then we'll finish with my final question, which I ask all my guests. Yeah, yeah. So these ones, Nate, just answer them as honestly as you can, whatever comes to mind first. We'll go through three or four of them, and then we'll finish up with that last question. Yeah, yeah. So my, my first question is, which does relate back to what you were telling me before, which I think is um, quite important. If you could go back and speak to your younger self when you were starting out coaching, what and you just had a minute, 30 seconds to a minute, what are the things you would tell yourself? Uh, I would say that I think I did everything right with eating. Uh, when I was younger, I was I just ate to try and grow. Not that I didn't because I was growing quite rapidly, so I got myself in a good uh, surplus early on. I think being smarter with my training would have been good because I, as much as I felt like I've grown from my injuries, it would have been nice to not have them. <laughs> yeah. So um, just be uh, when I started feeling niggles come on, not trying to train through them. That was that's one being my one of these things. Like I've always been someone who's always I'd love to get know the knowledge that I had now and put it back then but that's not possible yeah, but I think I think just being a little bit more in, uh, intuitive with my own body and knowing that okay yeah you're probably injured right now let's not push the boundaries and <laughs> or that didn't feel quite right I'm gonna try another rep anyway 
that was all. I've yes. always been silly like that. I'm like, oh, that didn't feel very good. That was that kind of tweaked in my wild back here or there. I'm like, yeah, well, I'll see how it feels in the next rep. And then I'll go down and squat another rep or I'll pull up, try to pull it again. I'm like, oh, yeah, that really did the job. Yeah. Um, so just to finish it off. Just to finish it really off. So I'd, I'd go back and tell myself just to be a little bit more conservative or smarter with certain things because I was always, I'm been, always been one of those songs that I've always pushed the boundaries and I'm like, I'm like, ah, oh, I need to get to 10 reps and I'm, I'm at nine and that rep just tweaked a little bit. I'm like, but I need to get 10, so I'll go, to, go for 10, and I went for 10 reps and yeah. then that really did it. Yeah. Job. And that's happened a fair few times over my, over my long training career. Mm-hmm. Good, good, uh, wise experience. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. the experience. I wish I could just give myself a little bit of that experience. All right, next one. If you could choose a superpower, what would it be? Uh, right. Would it be anything related to Hulk Cody, a super strength? Yeah, yeah look, I'm, I'm a Hulk fan, I'm a Hulk or Superman fan. Um, uh, super strength is always nice, that's always a lot in In it for, um, love to fly though. Oh, yeah, I think flying probably, as much as I hate Heights, I think obviously if you knew how to fly, it wouldn't be an issue. You wouldn't be afraid of it. Yeah, you wouldn't be afraid of it. So I'm, I'm someone who, like I said, I, I hate heights. And uh, so I think being able to overcome heights, which is I'm never going to be able to get up to overcome because my fear of falling is too great. I'm like, I, I, just can't, I, I don't see any worse thing than jumping off a bridge with some rubber bands strapped around your ankles. Oh, yeah. Silly, or jumping out of a plane when you've got... Uh, some string and some, you know, a sheet over the top of you. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't interest me whatsoever. Um, but if I was able to fly, then I could, you know, meet that fear. So, and that fear would now no longer be a fear. So, you know, maybe flying. Like I said, strength is always cool, and that's kind of the obvious one. Mm. But a flying would be more. Well, always feel like a, a Superman kind of yeah. character. Yeah, exactly. Which I think is like the ultimate, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. T2. Well, that's why... Su- Super- Apart from Kryptonite. As much as Holy <laughs> Rain has sort of been very... Um, based around Hulk and that kind of just came through pure coincidence really. Um, Superman was always, as a, as a kid, was always my favourite superhero and I think that's because he just, yeah, he was strong and I think that the whole... He's the best. Yeah, he was strong and he could fly, you know, so he was bulletproof. Jacked. Those, yeah, he was jacked. He just <laughs> did all those things you really wanted and yeah. as you were a kid growing up, so, and you kind of thought that you were until right. all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're like, oh, maybe not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's fair enough. That's a good one, man. I don't, don't think you can go wrong with Superman. Yeah. Like, who wouldn't want those yeah. powers? Yeah. Uh, all right. Next one. If you could choose, if you have one last meal, uh, or you could choose like your, your the best meal lineup, and I'm talking, it can be starter, main dessert. What would you choose? What's what's what is Nathan's favorite food? To consume. Oh, jeez. Um, I know there's a lot out there. It's a big question. <laughs> when I had dinner uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, I don't drink alcohol. I haven't drunk alcohol since I was like very for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. I've done it a few times. Um, but uh, I had a beer braised beef cheek the other week, and it was probably one of the nicest pieces of meat I've ever eaten. And whenever I go out for dinner, I generally like, I gravitate towards steak. Yeah. Uh, it's funny, for someone who never, when I was a kid, I hated red meat. I, I really like red meat now. Mm-hmm. Um, it was amazing. Uh, so I'd love to have that again, because that was just amazing. It was 
one of the, probably the best pieces of meat I've ever eaten. That's a big um, statement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's beer braised beef cheek, and it didn't taste like beer because I don't like the taste of beer either. No, it's just it's, um, it gives it that like part of the flavour. Yeah, like, cross sweetness. It was a little bit. It gave a little bit of sweetness to the meat. Yeah, it was it was it was very good. So I would I would go for that. Um, other than that, I really enjoy my own cooking. Um, hey, you uh, you've got a few uh, cookbooks I've there, a, don't I've you? A cookbook out there. Um, but so I really enjoy uh, really enjoy cook, cooking. So and it's funny. I mean, we get a lot of the times I kind of get um, pulled up on it. It's like, oh, you should be more adventurous to figure what you eat out or whatever it is. I'm like, I like my own food. Like, I went down for a trip down to Melbourne recently and I literally prepped, did the whole, you know, prepped a whole bunch of meals and I froze them and then took them down with me. Um, and everyone else was eating what was out on the, on the platter and I went to, you know, I walked down to 7-Eleven at 8, got me outside um, and went down, borrowed the microwave at 7-Eleven and That's a happy tip to know, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Didn't know, I found that one out. Um, and then I well, baby rooms apparently in hotels and, and airports yeah, and stuff like yeah. just didn't know but yeah, there you go yeah got microwaves in them so brilliant um, <laughs> and I went and heated up my food I think I made a really nice butter chicken that's been my kind of my yeah. I'm known for my butter chicken um, so and I ended up eating that because I love it oh, so um, yeah my own my own cooking is I, I don't mind yeah. I like that that's good it's yeah. good to, to speak to someone who's in the transport world and actually can cook and enjoys cooking. Yeah, like I said, it's I underrated. I don't, I don't stick to the basic chicken and rice and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> but but there's a thousand stuff. ways to make chicken and rice. Oh, this is what yeah, I always say. Right. Right? Yeah. And like you said, butter chicken is technically chicken and rice. It, it is. It's just got a, 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 it's not the plain chicken and rice. It's got some sauce in it and bits and pieces. Spices. And, and, spices yeah. and stuff like that. So yeah, um, so I, I enjoy... Um, you know, being able to manipulate the, you know, a good amount of macronutrients to each meal into a nice, nice tasting meal as well. So I mean, I've been good at doing that. I make pizzas at home. That's kind of my, my usual dinners. Mm-hmm. Um, which is which is important, I think. Because I mean, look, someone who does consume a fair bit of food, and again, within this realm, you generally have to. And you your father, you've got kids as well. It's important to make foods that are fun and not boring, not only for them but for yourself. I think you call it food palatability. So yeah, uh, in your in your off season, you, you when you're like, and you're eating four and a half thousand calories, and you're like, food scale. <laughs> yeah, you just yeah, you don't want to. All of a sudden, you don't want to um. Yeah, make your food boring. You want to be able to enjoy it and like, okay, I actually go, okay, uh, I've got to eat 200 grams of rice and uh, 200 grams of chicken or whatever it might be and it take, you know, take you... And you're like, glugging it down. hour right? to get it through and all of a sudden you make it into a nice, like, you know, like I said, butter chicken or Thai curry or something like that. And you're like... Slides down and, hey, you, and you look forward to it. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So yeah. And I've never... 100%. I never get to the point where I'm like, oh, man. Unless I'm at late at night and I'm tired. Yeah, yeah. But other than that, I really enjoy eating my food. Right. I'll have to try your famous butter chicken. I've seen it pop up on Instagram. A few people, you yeah, know, it's, it's a popular one. Yeah, it's getting around, so that's all right. Oh, mate, I'll have to try it. All right, and my, my last question, which I finished with all my guests on, is can you tell us about a time in your career, in your life, a fear, a major fear that you had that you had to overcome? And what you learn from overcoming it, Ooh, whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Ah, a fear. Mm. It's 
So I think maybe it was like a perceive it could have been in your academic days, it could have been in your powerlifting triumphs, uh, fear of failure. Clients. Okay. Uh, I think it's something that I've always, I've always got that fear of failure, and I think it's something that's held me back. Probably the biggest thing that's ever held me back, and it still holds me back now. I'm, I'm someone who my, my uh, want to win is and be the best sometimes pulls me back a little bit um, because it, it stops me from doing certain things because I'm like, I don't want to fail, so I'm not going to do it. So sometimes that has been my, I think the fear of failure has been my biggest, um, yeah, something that's held me back the most. Um, and I, I try to listen to, to people and to, you know, you read books and you listen to audio books about, you know, the, you know if you, when you progress, if you want to progress, you want to, you got to be able to have that, lose that fear that you might fail. And um, sometimes failure is a good thing because uh, it makes you learn and everything like that. But that's always been my, my hardest thing. I'm like, I can't fail. Like if I start something, it, I have to win at it. I have to do well at it. Uh, and it has been something that, um, has held me back in a lot of lot of ways, I think. So um, it's also helps me to succeed, yes, because I'm very pig-headed and I'll just be like, no, nah, I'm going to succeed at this. And sometimes there's that, that I have then been able to grind out some sort of succession with whatever it, whatever it was. But then in other times, it's probably stopped me from from doing things. Like I, have, I have a lot of fear of failure. I have a fear of asking stupid questions. Uh, I, it's one thing that I just wish, I'm, I'm very introverted. Um, so getting something negative, I saw someone telling me something negative back of, of a question I thought was pretty good, I have a massive fear of. Like, um, I recently went to the, the UEBC and I had all these questions in my head and my fear of asking the questions overcome me and I couldn't ask the questions. So, and it's something that now I'm sitting there going, okay, now I could have just asked the guys that I, that I, would, I would listen, listen to and I look up to, uh, and they probably have the, they're in the best position to be able to answer those questions. I've now got to try and <laughs> listen to all their podcasts to try and see if they've actually answered that before. Um, so it's one of those things where, yeah, my fear of failure, my fear of rejection uh, has always been something that's it's held me back. And so I wish I could, I wish I could re release that, but it, I mean, I'm trying to work on it, but it's something that I, I struggle with a lot. Mm. Mm. And I think a lot of people will be able to relate to that. I think we all have it to some degree, yeah. especially when you're around peers and people who you idolize and look up to because you don't want to think that you don't want them to think less of you yeah, and you're yeah, so yeah. worried about that and where really you should just be you because they're generally half the time they won't and mm. they'll answer your question and that fear is literally non-existent but in your own mind it does exist and it's so easy to say to someone well just don't be afraid of spiders but it's like well it's not that easy because it's, it's a psychological thing going inside that's your head that's exactly it and that's why i've tried to yeah, listen so, okay. to Try to listen to other guys that have been overcome their fear of, of failures and um, and I'm like, oh, I need to be able to work on that, but I just can't, like I try to, but it's just something that it's, 
it is definitely a barrier that holds me back sometimes. So uh, it's, yeah, I'll keep working on it. Uh, hopefully I can overcome that. Because mm -hmm. uh, I do think if I didn't have certain failures, like I, I got into the, the gym business because I kind of got, you know, pushed into it with my, um, from my wife Sophie, and she's like, you should open a gym. Mm -hmm. Other than that, I would have been always fearful. I always wanted to own a gym, but I was always fearful of it. Um, Essentially, not working out, sure. uh, and I still get have fears. I'm like, oh, are we are we going to keep progressing and all that sort of stuff? Um, and yeah, like I said, there's definitely been certain times in my life where I wanted to do things, and the fear of failure helped me back, mm -hmm. which is understandable. Yeah. And like you said, it's I understand. That would Whereas some people are like, ah, it doesn't matter if I fail, I'll learn from it and grow. And I understand that that mindset, and I, uh, and I. Definitely wish I had that mindset, but it's just something I still can't quite get past. It's not a switch. It, yeah. It's something that you have to make sense of. You have to get your head around and you have to work on it yeah. from internally. Yeah. And like you said, you'll build on that and you'll get better at it over time. And, yeah. But there's no magic answer, is it like anything? But then also, like I said, that fear of failure has also made me who I am as a competitor. Because I'm like, I cannot lose. Mm. Like, if I, whenever, when I was younger, it was like, I will outwork, I'll, I'm going to hate that term, but I'll, because you can work smarter and all that sort of stuff, but I'll, I'll outwork and outsmart everyone else. And that's what was my mindset was, and that's kind of how I progressed as a, from my younger bodybuilding career to think, I was like, okay, I'm going to out-train everyone, but I'm also going to try and, oh, there's got to be a better way than everyone, that everyone's doing it, things. Everyone's just starving themselves and dehydrating themselves and getting up on stage feeling like crap and all this sort of stuff. I'm like, there's got to be a better way. So I'm going to be better at everyone because I want to win. Uh, and if I want to win, I need to find a better way to do things than everyone else is doing. So yeah, it has obviously paid, paid off in certain ways. Um, but then in other ways, it's definitely held me back as well. Mm. It's always a balance. Yeah, and it's definitely a balance. People think of fear as a, a negative thing, but it does serve a purpose. Mm. Um, it, because at the end of the day, it builds character, and yep. having those fears and moving towards them and overcoming them is, is what makes us who we are. Oh, and just like you have said, it sort of crafted your business, how you approach things, your accolades, your successes. Yep. And there will always be fears. I mean, we're on the Fearless podcast. <laughs> and give you a nudge in the right direction yeah. but you know that's something without me going into it right now that has a very deep meaning to me that comes from a you know uh, you know a painful place if you like but I, that thing or that situation which instigated that has what has you know grown me to to do what I do now myself so again it's the fear is never a bad thing there's always something despite what people say are people fearless? We look at the most fearless people in the world. Say Red Bull athletes, people who are just yeah. doing these crazy things. And even they have fears, but their fears for us might seem laughable. Yeah. But then our fears to them are like so insignificant. Yeah. So I think to, to summarize, there's a really good quote I heard in the past few months. And I really try and keep this frame of mind when I interact with people like now. And it says, everyone is going through an internal battle you know nothing about. Yeah. And it's, it's it's just a nice to keep in the back of your mind because sometimes when people are not having a good day or things might be a bit rough, mm. you might not know that they're going through some pretty heavy stuff and it doesn't give them the right to be rude. I really like that one, yeah. I've heard that before too and I really like it. It's one, one of my favourite sort of little quotes as well. Yeah, oh, there you go. I'm glad, I'm glad yeah. it resonated. But it, yeah, certainly, it certainly hit home with me and um, 
it's a nice perspective sometimes to have and you, you have a little bit more empathy and understanding yeah. when you when you go in and approach people and you know like ourselves or we're in contact with a lot of people with what we do and it does kind of sort of set the frame and the mood a little bit to be a little bit more empathetic and understanding and perhaps be able to help better help um, people on the other end of the line as yeah. well so um, thank you for sharing nathan i'm um yeah it's, been it's, a, it's, a, um, it's an important point yeah. to talk about fear you know yeah. and it's nice to share that around and people who do idolize and look up to you can perhaps sort of seek solace and resonate a little bit more um, I, I like to show people's humanic qualities because yeah, yeah. people often tend to alienate themselves and think that they can't achieve certain things and it's nice to know that hey we all sleep we all breathe oh, we all yeah, eat definitely yeah. all capable of it um, just before we pop off where can people find you where can they learn more about you what are the best, where are the best places to find Nathan Wallen? Uh, so to find me personally, I have my own uh, Instagram page, which is just Nathan Wallace underscore. Mm-hmm. Uh, then as a, that's just, it's more working on, that's more just personally me. Sure, uh, sure. I share a lot of my, my own training stuff on there, my family related stuff. Um, so that's, that's me. Um, as a business, uh, we also have our hold, hold Your Own Instagram, so we have Hold Your Own underscore. Um, and then we also have the gym as well. If you were local to the Gold Coast and you want to, want to drop down or know more about the place, uh, we have the Hold Your Own Inst- the gym as well. So that one's Hold Your Own underscore gym. Um, we also have a Facebook page, which is Hold Your Own. Uh, and... And our website, so we have our website which has got all our coaching services on there, um, a bit about us, a bit about all the coaches that are here, um, uh, so and that one's www.holdyourown.com.au um, and then I also do have my own personal website which is where I sell my cookbook um, and any other personal things that I'm currently working on at the moment. Uh, which will be going up there as well, which is www.nathanwallace.com. And I'll I'll link all of that in the show notes below so people who are listening or perhaps watching this episode can follow along and uh, click through to those links and perhaps follow up on some of the things we've talked about today and, you know, look at some of those recipes as well, which Mm. would be be a great help. (laughs) But we'd love to do a round two. I think um, talking more in depth about more of the competition phases and, like... um, Well, specific yeah, to bodybuilding prep would be re- really nice to do yeah. um, but I think this has been great because it gives a bit of an overview we've talked you know about programming we've slayed some misconceptions perhaps about how people can approach their programming and more about you in terms of how you approach you know what you have built to be a successful business so thank you Nathan I really appreciate thank your you. time um, pleasure to come back anytime mate absolutely my pleasure so until next time guys as always stay fearless <laughs>